Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. On the 40th anniversary of her debut on the Abbey stage, Karen Ardiff talks with me on a pre-show matinee morning about being an unmanageable sister at the height of the referendum last year, the sense of urgency of the repeal campaign and the stillness of the aftermath. From Rathmines Road to Ballymun, Karen talks about her approach to character, the expectation of emotion, a refusal to weep and the perplexing riddle of how to remind your body that you're only acting. We talk about creative control, common sense decision-making and the complexities that are revealed when you're the author of your own work. Enjoy this podcast. We are an hour and a half from showtime. Do you have a pre-show ritual and am I eating into it anytime <laughs> now? <laughs> well, this is just perfect for pre-show ritual. Um, but uh, I do really, I go up to the dressing room about an hour before, depending. Uh, you know, once we're into a run, about an hour is fine. Uh, chat to the girls. That would be Mary Driscoll, Claire Barrett and Charlotte Bradley. Catch up on the soap opera of their lives, which we've now fallen into. Did you get the fridge or... Uh, you know, did Jethro sleep last night? And you know what I mean? You're just completely in other people's world and very tiny things become important. Then we go down, I suppose, three quarters of an hour before the show and we do two set pieces from the show. One is Bingo, which is a choral piece with a lot of us. And the other one is Dreary Rotten Life, which is a lot more entertaining than it sounds. In fact, it brings eyes down, but it is, again, a choral piece between five of us ladies and then usually just kind of stomp around the stage a bit saying hello to people warm the voice up a tiny bit and go up and get into me gear so pretty simple everybody does something different though so some people do and I know I'll do some yoga and everybody does their own their own thing do you get nervous no I don't. Do you just quell that? Were there ever nerves or is that just practice? Um, there were ever nerves. The only time I'd ever be nervous would be before, uh, the first time you put it before an audience if you're not rehearsed properly, if I don't know what I'm doing. But no, otherwise, this on stage is my safe space. I'm not nervous there. Bizarrely. The last time <coughs> the Unimaginable <coughs> Sisters were on stage, the country was at the height of the Repeal the Eighth Amendment yeah. referendum. Can you talk to me about approaching the role of Rosa Bryan at that time and in that climate. Yeah, I can. It was, it's it's seldom in a way, usually, that you do something that is really quite so germane to what's happening in the country at the, at the time. So I was very conscious that I wanted to do her justice, I suppose, because her story was, you know, and so many stories were appearing in the In Her Shoes uh, thing that was appearing on Facebook and various other places. You know, you were starting to hear women's testimonies and they were hugely important, I think, to to getting the vote uh, happening the way it did. And I think we were all very aware that a lot of the stories in Unmanageable Sisters were also testimonies. Um, so it affected it just in terms of Graham was very inspiring in terms of saying, remember whose shoulders you're standing on when you get to be standing on this stage to tell these stories. And you're telling them on behalf, perhaps, of people who may not have been able to. Um, so, yeah, that was ringing in our ears a lot. And certainly for me, um, there are, there is a tendency when a woman tells a great truth about herself on stage, there is a tendency for either the director to look for or the woman to feel that she needs to do or the audience to expect her to cry, weep. Uh, it was very important to me that Rose wouldn't because she didn't feel sorry for herself. She felt raging and I felt that matched the mood of the time. So I was determined that not one tear would fall from her eyes at any point. 
and it doesn't. And it's very handy the next day because you don't wake up looking like somebody punched you, which is also very pleasant. But that wasn't the reason I did it. I, I, I think that was, again, this was about engaging people in the story rather than looking for sympathy. And that was very important to me. And it was funny because I followed very quickly with doing a thing called Rathmines Road by Deirdre Kinnan also, and also in this theatre. But it was produced by Fish Shamble in co-production with the Abbey. And that was also very germane to the Brett Kavanagh trial that was happening at the same time. It's the, pretty much the same story. And I was the central character. That character did weep um, because that was what was correct to do. And it was, uh, you know, uh, but it was weird in the one year to do two uh, stories that were so current that you could hear it from the audience, you know, the resonances. Does it take it out of you each and every night doing that, those type of shows, that type of show? Yeah, so there is a cause, so it's not nerves, but certainly, I know this sounds really ridiculous, but actually crying on stage uh, and getting angry on stage make it hard because I sort of came up with a sentence, just clapped, no, no, it's a podcast, you can't be making noises like that. I came up with my own little way of describing that is that my body doesn't know I'm an actress. So my mind does, but my body doesn't. So when I cry or when I get very, very adrenalinized, that's not a word, but heck, uh, and angry, it, it does. Yeah, your body reacts as if it's happened to you. And I'm going to use a very odd phrase in real life, you know. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it can take some time to come down from that. You feel it in your body and it remains in your body. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, certainly... Uh, the Rathmines Road character I found invading my sleep um, and funny. That was the weirdest one. I remember going during uh, Rathmines Road. My husband is Michael Gamurvey. He's an, also an actor and he was doing an, a new show called The Lost Case. It was the second iteration of it. And there was a scene in that that was set in, um, in the, a lot of it was set in the, the flats and there was a scene with some young men well, men, and uh, there was a lot of loud pumping music and you were invited in uh, 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 singly, basically, on your own. And I went to that show, an afternoon version of that, just before going to do Rathmines Road, and I couldn't walk into the room. I did eventually. I just seemed against all logic to walk into that room. And I did eventually because I said it in my own head. I looked around the room and I said, three of the people in this room have been over to my house for dinner, like, <laughs> but they're so flippant. Incredibly realistic. Yeah. And I think I felt vulnerable because of what I was acting all the time, you know. Uh, um, I just, and I wouldn't, you know, obviously there's things you do and don't do in your life, you know, as an older woman, I suppose, as I am, but, uh, well, oldish. But, uh, yeah, no, definitely my vulnerability was was at a, a level that wouldn't be normal to my life, I suppose. Having a second go, at Unmanageable Sisters, have different things occurred to you about the play since then? Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate it very well. First of all, there's two new players and that always makes a huge difference and they happen to be two very, very close friends of mine, Helen Norton and Dee Malloy. Um, so the relationships are slightly different. So, for example, I think my character has more of a relationship with Marie. She's not quite as isolated, perhaps, as she was before. Not that my character didn't have a relationship with Marie before, but it's just there's just different people on the stage. Partly that. Partly, I suppose there's a sense, the sense of urgency about the eighth in the last production. For me, I don't know precisely exactly how every other uh, actress on stage felt personally, because I wouldn't presume to, to know. But 
makes me feel a little bit more in this production that we're telling the stories of people who are still in situations that haven't been magically erased by the, the, the repeat of the Eighth Amendment. I don't think Audrey Rooney, our stage manager, would mind me mentioning that she and her partner Renee uh, have been left in an impossible situation. They have two little girls who uh, Audrey is not legally entitled to be a parent of and I know Noelle is also fighting a fight uh, on behalf of herself as an adopted person and the, you know these are these are pe- person, personal issues and people's issues and also in this case women's issues although um, I think they also uh, they affect everyone but the, those issues are, are still there so there there is a little bit of a sense in this production that there's no kind of striving for, towards a magic bullet and that kind of makes it a little, a little bit almost more poignant to me. You'd be ignorant to think that everything has been fixed since the referendum and the referenda. Yes, um, indeed. I was going to ask you about Rose, about leaving Rose behind. And can you do that? Excuse and, me. And can you see or do you see Rose everywhere? I do see her. Uh, I do see her places and she does feel slightly different to me this time around. I don't know why exactly. Uh, I think it's perhaps because the questions she's asking in the monologue that she has feel a little bit more like they're being shouted right up a barrel or something like that, that they're, they're, they're lonelier questions in a way. I don't know why that is. The audience reaction, the audience's reaction to Rose's provocative views, it's reassuring. Mm. There's a wave of disapproval <clears throat> that ripples through the audience and from that we are led into your powerhouse monologue and there's laughter there as mm. well, perhaps of recognition. Watching you on stage, it looks like you gather the laughter as fuel for Rose's speech. <laughs> feel as if you're just, you're taking it back and as you say, you're not crying. No. Do you know what it is? It, in some ways, I feel that sometimes because we said we, this is a, a very funny and often very slapstick and often quite broad comedy, you know, we set people up to laugh. So sometimes this turns a phrase even within the beginning of the monologue and that she's, ta- she's been talking about sex in a way that's crude and in a way that does invite, you know, even her extreme views on, you know, what women should and shouldn't be asking for, invite laughter. They, they should and they, that's what they try to do. And then almost immediately... Uh, you're talking about the similar issues and you're expecting them not to laugh. Now, I don't, when people laugh at that, I kind of, I do play with them a bit, actually, if that's not too odd a word, but just to see where I can help them flip into where I think they need to be because I think if they're laughing at the end, I don't think it's helpful. I'm not Mm. sure, you know. Uh, that sounds manipulative and I don't really mean it like that. It's just more kind of that we're kind of playing a bit of a tennis game. It's, it's such a joy to do. It's such an amazing piece to kind of share. And you wouldn't want to do it on your own in a room to no one or to one. It's like it's a real communal kind of piece, isn't it? And there's no laughter at the end. By the end of it, there's just applause. That's the, you know, I mean, you can't laugh at what she's written. I don't, th- I don't think anyone ever has at that point. There is so much bitterness and begrudgery and loneliness in this play. And there's ne- next to nothing Christian about these Catholic women. No. We can understand them, but but do you like them? Do I like them? I think there's a, quite a range of them, actually. Now, do I like the way they behave towards one another? No, they they're really, can be really ghastly. Like, 
yeah, pretty much every one of them. It's, I suppose the one thing kind of that I have to keep in my mind is uh, you, you kind of, j- just as you get to the point of judging them as people, you remember that they speak in unison. And, you know, that so much about it is 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 not real. In, in It's such an interesting, weird, mad play in that, you know, they speak exactly the same things of the same experiences and yet they present as all of these individuals. So the dramatic license and tricks are being played. It's it's a fantastically tricksy, tricksy play. But in a way, I think the women are taking the fall for uh, impossible standards that have been set for them in which all of them are always going to fail. So, for example, the whole play is basically as if you put a crumb of bread in front of starving people. It's inevitable what is going to happen. So you put a million green shield stamps in front of these people who are starved of both experiencing self-care and, uh, you know, things, goods uh, and love above all. Uh, in a lot of these women's lives so much is talked about about shame and guilt and there seems to be in no reasonable way for them to enjoy the things they do have because they're riddled with shame and guilt so these shiny things put on the stage brings out the very worst in them do I like Rose? yeah I do I do like Rose and I like Rose because of what she would say if she wasn't in the world, which is what she says in her monologue. And what that's what all of them do. They say what, what they would say if they weren't in their situations. Of course, what they say is comes out of their situations, but you can't dislike a character you play anyway. Do you not think so? No, you mm. can't fully know because you can't you have to find comment the on them. Yeah, you have to find the humanity in them. You do, yeah. And finding that. You, well, you're living, you're, you're, you're there moment to moment, so it has to make sense to you and you can't comment on it. You can't sort of nast, you know, you, they always say you have to be able to, you, you play verbs, you can't play a non-verb, so you can't nast. But you can desire or you can, you know, do anything. I'm going to run out of very, I have an English grade and I can't think of a <laughs> verb. To run? I don't know, that's maybe all I can think of. Sorry, Lisa. <laughs> uh, where am I going with this? We have, we've peppered around this. Where am I going? Karen Art, if you are a child of the theatre, yeah, being on the Abbey stage in Tomás McGonagall's Midsummer Night's Dream at an early age. According to our website archives, you played a gnome. Would that be correct? Yeah, it's a non-speaking gnome. <laughs> non-speaking However, gnome. I would like to, I'd like to kind of recalibrate that as a fairy because I was in a dress you would only put a child in in the 70s, which was like a chiffon mini dress. I think you'd be arrested if you put an 11 or 12 year old girl in that. Okay. Now, so he's definitely a fairy rather than a gnome. Well, if it was no, very even older, and a curly wig, which you would have thought wasn't necessary. But anyway, um, and uh, and that was forty years ago. So this is my fortieth anniversary of my debut That's in the crazy. Abbey. I, w- I wanted to ask you what your initial impression of the Abbey was and your abiding memory of that production. Yeah, funny. Eleven or twelve. I remember the rehearsal room very clearly. I remember it all very clearly. I could tell you any line from that play. It's absolutely seared in my memory. I remember the other fairies slagging me because they kept saying that they'd watched Eminem and they wouldn't tell me what it was, and I didn't have that cultural reference because my parents obviously wouldn't let me watch Mork and Mindy. I was quite protected, and they strung that out for the whole run, and that was uh, an abiding memory. I remember our we had sort of these green eyes with false eye eyebrows and they just got bigger and bigger and bigger until I don't know what we looked like by the end. 
I remember all the actors who, many of whom I've gone on to work with, many, many. Uh, I remember the sound of the loose flagstone outside the rehearsal room. Still there, hasn't been fixed, 40 years. <laughs> I think I remember that, unless I'm painting that back, but that's, the, I always listen out for that when I'm in the Abbey rehearsal room because it's very comforting. You can still hear it. Yeah. <laughs> don't get it fixed though. Or don't tell anyone to get it fixed. But uh, I remember, it's Moss McCann, I remember his voice. I remember the light through the windows there. It's mad, it's like it's, it was a super important memory to me and as the signs are on it, I never sort of stopped wanting to do that. I thought it was amazing. Was it of significance to you um, that you were at the Abbey or just being that age, did it, did it occur to you that this was a big deal? Huge deal because my uncle Willie from Stony Batter, one of those great old, and it's funny, it's one of the, the yeah, he's, they, they were hugely cultured men and women of that time in inner city areas. Uh, I remember th- my Uncle Willie and his companions, one of whom was blind and one of whom uh, was deaf. And when my uh, uncle's voice started to go, they were just the most, they, the way they communicated was hilarious. They kept forgetting what the other person's deficit was and slipping up. But anyway, they used to sit in the corner of Walsh's in Stony Batter. And they would have passionate arguments about opera and uh, was F.J. McCork the greatest actor ever and this lesser known bit like uh, that Freddie character in The Dead you know who talks about that opera that, do you know that one um, when he's out of his box um, uh, so he'd he'd talked to me about the Abbey had I been probably I know I'd been to the Gaiety I know I'd seen Ray McNally doing Death of a Salesman because Willie had brought me to that and you know um, my parents went to Gemini productions and all of that but these were not people in the arts they, so I was where the Abbey was a big deal yeah. So you, you came from a, a culture background? I suppose so yeah but I mean none of us my father and his father were printers and you know they were kind of quite political I think my grandfather was in Kilmainham jail and Manchester jail for printing certain literature during the rising and all of that kind of stuff so but yeah they went to stuff and they used to go to live music and they would have gone to see the Dubliners and they would have gone to see, you know, all of that kind of crack. So your route into, say, acting, if, if you're on the Abbey stage by 11, then you would have gone to classes? classes. Yeah, classes I went to Betty Ann Norton. The reason I did was because I was born with a tongue tie. So that was cut a couple of times and that's why I was sent to speech and drama classes, ironically. Uh, so I went first when I was about four or five, uh, along with Helen Norton, who was in my school in a year ahead of me. And so I've known Helen Your since then. My fellow unmanageable sister. My fellow unmanageable. And then I went to her Betty Ann Norton's classes in Harcourt Street at the age of about seven, where I met Jim Culleton, who now runs Fishamble, and Paul Kogan lighting designer extraordinaire and you know there's a whole load of people who met like when we were children really bizarrely and yeah and did you enjoy it straight away um, if you were there for say elocution uh, for as you say the, the yeah because you did drama as well so the elocution was grand although it taught me reading ahead which is read, you know to, to read ahead which is which is because I also started doing voiceovers as a child which is another bit of it you know a lot of it started from very Young. And so when you're at school, going to say leap into secondary school, maybe late primary and secondary school, because you were doing acting all the time, were you popular or was there any jealousy in the fact that you were um, out there 
doing things at the Abbey and, and other theatres as well and voiceovers like... No, I didn't really do anything in other theatres. I would have done, you know, class uh, shows from Betty and Odin. But no, I, I had a, my few friends that were very close. Uh, I think I was probably... Uh, you know, likeable enough, but I certainly wasn't the centre of attention and I was quite a protected child. So it was one of those cases that um, I kind of usually wasn't allowed to do most of the things that the other girls were doing. You know what I mean? So going to drama class was a huge outlet, huge outlet for me. Um, And so many of my friends are friends that I made from that time and so many of my colleagues actually as well. So it was a natural enough step for you to then go on to study drama at Samuel Beckett Trinity. In those years, was there anything in those years that knocked you or was it just a breeze to you? Because I know so many actors who say go into training courses and and they love singing or they love dancing and then they're in a class of like really good singers, really good dancers and then almost the the joy is taken out of it by learning a technique. I know what you mean. Uh, It was slightly different for me because... uh, I did a two subject moderatorship, which is so I did modern English as an academic subject and drama as an academic subject. And there was a huge practical side to it uh, as well. But it was quite an academic course. So and as you know, in academia, you don't really, you know, look at your essay alongside somebody else's essay kind of thing. It's not quite so uh, uh, competitive, comparative. And when so I did a huge amount of shows in players um, and, you know, that was, I mean, the, the, you know, you'd play all kinds of roles from making the sandwiches to, uh, I just loved it all, I have to say. And I don't feel like it was, you know, that I went in and went, pazow, here I am. Just enjoyed mucking in and hanging out with people who are all like the people in my drama class who all enjoyed doing that stuff. When you're in, say in the course that has the academic side as well and then you're in players mm. as you know in which do you think you learned most about the craft of acting i suppose in a way by doing it but i mean you you'd really learn most by acting with people and looking at them and working with people and uh in the, in the early days a lot asking people's advice um all the best advice i got was stuff i actually asked people, what would you say is the most? What do, you, do you remember what that kind of advice was and do you still use it? Yes, absolutely. Favourite one, bit of a name drop, Sinead Kuzak. I was an extra in The Three Sisters that they did with Cyril and I asked her her advice what do, and she said, people are inclined to believe you. I thought that was genius. So drop anything that'll bar them from believing you and don't worry about any of the rest of it. Isn't that, that brilliant? Is people are inclined to believe you. I love that. The leap from drama school to, say, working as an actor, mm. um, was that a big leap? And and when did you feel, uh, was there a specific moment that you felt like a legitimate actor that you could call yourself? An actor or an actress, by the way? Doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, yes and yes. So uh, very soon after, uh, when I was in college, myself and the late Siobhan Miley, who played Peggy and Mike here on the Abbey stage opposite Michael Murphy, who became my husband. So there you go. And she was a good friend of mine in college. But we uh, we had done a puppetry course and they did the eight cycle in the Peacock uh, with people like Alvin Frey and Kieran Hines and all these marvellous people. And they had these giant puppets that 
the guy who ran our puppet course, John McCormick, who ran the whole course, in fact, a wonderful man, had designed these enormous puppets and myself and Siobhan ended up going in as puppeteers, so kind of essentially invisible. And then, you know, did a summer company of doing plays all summer in players with Jim Culloden and Paul Keoghan and, you know, all of that lot called Strange Days and Richard Cook, who's now my agent. Um, and uh, but then uh, went into the gate as an extra in Three Sisters. And in that show, I met an actor called Michael Pennington, who ran with Mike, the late Michael Bogdan of the English Shakespeare Company. And he invited me to audition for that and one day and then gave me a list of places they were touring to. And I went away and went to a phone box and called the gate and asked, could he come to the phone and said, did you just offer me that? And it was a year's tour with the English Shakespeare Company doing two plays, Coriolanus and Winter's Tale, based in England. But we went to spend a month in India, a month in Australia, went to Japan, Finland, Germany and all over England. My mother nearly had a seizure, as you can imagine. Um, I thought she was overreacting, but of course there were no mobile phones, so I'd phone her pissed out of my head and from like a hotel in Calcutta, you know. Yeah, nothing to worry about Nothing to worry about there. And she didn't didn't know a single soul. Anyway, there was all kinds of things, shenanigans. From then on, I thought, yeah, that's what I do. So when you're when you're working on such a tour and you're straight out of college and you have a a year's work, what and and on such a tour that would broaden your view of that there is work beyond Ireland and work beyond Dublin. Were you ever tempted to relocate to London or any of the other bigger cities? I really wasn't. I don't know why. Well, I do, I suppose. I remember going to a couple of auditions there when I was over there. And you'd travel for miles. You'd sit there with people you didn't know. I remember going for an audition, funnily enough, for a Playboy the Western World, which I didn't get. And there were three girls there who were barefoot with back-combed hair and kind of, you know, smudges on their face. They'd come dressed. And um, I thought, this is awful. And and one time, I remember a director asking me why I hadn't gone over to, why I'd stayed in Ireland or something, why I didn't think I could make it over in England or something. Anyway, made me mad. But I thought that it wouldn't be a very nice city to be unemployed in. And I figured, unfortunately, given the profession, it would be better to be in a city that was nicer to be when you're unemployed because that was definitely a feature. <laughs> And still is, you know, at times. So uh, that makes so much sense. You know, so much logical sense. I'm aware of time, so I'm going to keep going. Yeah, now, go for it. Because uh, I want to get to some things. As well as being a stage and screen actor, you're also a novelist, uh, as well mm. as a playwright, and you also write for a radio. So you can do, you can diversify into these creative outlets. When you're an actor, you wear other people's words, but when the words are your own <laughs> and you write about what you know, do you need to disguise that trail of biography a bit? That's a really good question. You've done this before. Um, It's funny. uh, I wanted to write for a very long time. And uh, true story, I started getting a thing where if it said the word write or book, I would throw it close. So I went to a shrink, literally, and told him about that. And he said, essentially got me to say or whatever. It came out that I was just afraid of of revealing myself. Um, so I went home and I wrote the novel that I wrote, which is kind of a family story and I've stopped worrying about revealing myself since. Uh, so ex- you're absolutely nail on head. Uh, I don't disguise. 
I mean, I do dis- I, d- I do kind of, you know, I don't write a bi- autobiography or anything like that. But uh, no, I'm not afraid of that. And the, one of the reasons I wanted to write anyway was because I wanted to have some creative control that wasn't collaborative. I love collaborating, but it's also nice to, you know, just not <laughs> as well, you know, to actually just have complete control over what's coming out. When you're talking about that creative control, as an actor, you're at the mercy of directors and casting directors, and they can have limited imaginations, mm. and you can get typecast, and mm. such and such actor can only be funny, and such and such an actor can't do funny. Yeah. When you know that you have that range and you're capable of doing that part, how do you book that system? Do you know, how do you, like, when you, when you know that you could do that, but they're not convinced of it? I don't know is the answer. I mean, I think we were, I was very lucky in this, in that I'm not sure... Um, Graham McLaren isn't from Ireland he's from Scotland I'm not sure an Irish director would instantly have thought of me for an inner city part although subsequent to it I've played quite a few uh, and on screen you know um, because again sometimes that kind of breaks something down do you know you need you need just one role you do, so that you yeah. can prove yourself in it but if they're not willing to see you like that or they're incapable yeah. I get frustrated on other actors' behalf, you know, because you know that an actor is capable. Sure, that's their job. They're capable of anything. I remember um, a friend of mine, in fact, Siobhan, used to say to me that uh, in the 80s, it was even worse in Ireland, that um, <clears throat> in the 90s, that, uh, you, God, you better not let anyone know you can move, uh, you know, as a, that, that you're good at movement or anything like that. In those days, that would make them think that you wouldn't be able to act, you know, that you were a movement person. That, like, you, you know, so one thing. Yeah. I think that's changing hugely, though, now. And also, when you look at, say, the younger people, even in the younger women in the, uh, the Unmanageable Sisters, they, uh, they're all just multi-talented producers and uh, actors and, you know, creators. And it's, it is kind of completely different now, you know, in that sense. The thing of being able to show what you can do as an actor, I suppose that's always going to have been uh, a problem for actors and really the people who work most are the people who get to show more what they can do I guess that's always been a a difficulty you know I'm kind of relishing at the moment having quite a few different things to do and quite a few ways of kind of showing you know what I can do in order hopefully that you know I love working on new plays and that and you need someone to take a leap with you with you yeah you talked about um, that the stage when you're on stage it's a safe place does acting come easy to you I enjoy it. I don't... The only time I've ever... Funny enough, the only times that I've ever found it difficult is when you're playing a smaller role. That's harder because you sort of... You don't have the time to kind of immerse. Um, so as I get older, I find it usually is easier because you're usually playing parts with more substance or parts that have a lot to them. Um, so... It wouldn't be one of the ways I characterise how I feel about acting is that I find it difficult. I don't think I find it difficult. That doesn't necessarily mean that I just go, right, I'll just slot this L performance out. You know, I find it uh, labour intensive and uh, immersive, but I absolutely love that, you know. Yeah, you wouldn't be in it if if it was excruciating each and every time. The hardest thing I think, say, in the unmanageables is that we have to freeze during some quite long monologues. If you get into an uncomfortable position where you're on a nerve, that's hard. (laughs) 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 That's that's one's own fault, I suppose. (laughs) 
wanted to ask you, um, you've been an actor all your life and a lot <clears> of life would have happened to you as it does to all of us uh, throughout those years. And there are a lot of sacrifices as an actor that you have to make and the show must go on. And I'm mm. thinking in terms of births and marriages and wakes and funerals. Yeah. How do you how do you deal, as you say, that when real life mm. collides with your working life and those priorities that are involved there? Yeah, I think it'd be tricky. My dad, Gil, when I was teching something, I remember uh, just left the tech for a while. Everyone was very understanding, came back and you just it, it is one of those things that, you know, you you do have to sometimes come to theatre having come from something that is, you know, you'd rather be going home and pouring a glass of wine. Uh, I, I, I don't mean that in a, just a kind of a lazy way. I mean, just, you know, when something has happened in your life that's difficult. Um, like I know people have gone on after somebody has died that day or, you know, they've received very bad news or, or that. I don't I don't know how I feel about that. It's very hard to make an understudy system work over here. One of the only jobs, to be, yeah, that you would have to do that, have yeah. to go out under such circumstances. Yeah. And certainly, you know, I mean, I think we've all had the experience of going on feeling really unwell. Do you know, that's that's happened. But uh, I don't know what the solution to that is. I wasn't working when my own dad passed away, so I didn't have to go through that particular experience. So I haven't had it in as stark a way as it has been for not other people get back to you. Mm. Oh, I've just always been curious about that because, mm. you know, when stuff happens, um, everyone else can take some time off. And yeah. And you just happen to be in a run. Yeah. You'd have to stagger through for until until someone else could go on stage with book in hand. I do remember when I got pregnant with my son Harry, I was uh, uh, on stage with Mick uh, playing his mother paging Mr. Freud. Uh, his mother while pregnant with his child had just spelled that out there. That is, uh, yep, that's a, <laughs> so mad. So but odd. I was performing a night and I was doing Fair City during the day and I couldn't get out of either of them, you know, because uh, I wasn't announcing it to anyone, but that was very, that was really hard because that was very tiring because I was growing, growing a, a person. And, that, and your character on Fair City would not have been pregnant? No, she was a guard on the beat, so... Probably not. She probably wouldn't have been 40 either, which I was at the time. But anyway, <laughs> it was artistic license. But uh, yeah, well, it was just that you have to be written out. You have to, you know, all of that of kind of thing. So you just sort of find yourself in those situations. But then it's not many people are able to take time off work in their first trimester or second, indeed. So uh, so the sacrifices can, you know, sometimes be balanced by the, the benefits oh, as well. absolutely. I feel for me, absolutely. There are also times when you know, you would call in sick for another work for, for you know, personal reasons. And it it can work to your advantage to come in and get out of your skin. But I wouldn't say that that would be the case for everyone. I'm sure people have gone. Uh, in fact, I know, certainly know people who have gone on in situations that are quite unthinkable. Would you say that the theatre community is a comforting community? So that when you are going through those terrible times or going through trials, that you come in and you you have good friends or people, as you say, that you've known since you were... Yeah, the theatre community is second to none. It's unbelievable. And it's one of the reasons my husband was working in England for 25 years and his brother, sadly, Tom Murphy, passed away. And we met that night, bizarrely. And uh, he... So that was one reason why he came back. But the other reason was he was absolutely overwhelmed at the community's just outpouring of love and support. It's unbelievable. 
It really was. And uh, it is an amazing community. It's a privilege to be part of. Because you came into the Abbey, say, when you were so young, and then you've worked here for decades, you know, it seems, it seems there, yeah, on and off for every <laughs> year and then every couple of years. What does the Abbey mean to you? I just love the space. I love the building, which I don't know how long they'll be in this building, but uh, it's hard to put into words, but uh, it's somewhere that I've always felt really at home. Uh, I love the fact that, you know, there are still people here, you know, from before uh, and that that continuity goes on because it's not just what goes on in the stages, you know, it's this whole big, fantastic force of nature and its history is always terribly like, you know, people are taught about it in their history books and it has a massive reputation abroad. But I just love the space. I love the two spaces. I love the peacock and I love I love the fact that in the peacock you literally just not even utter and somebody will hear you at the back like and uh, I just I love the wood at the side of it I love the whole thing I just love it I love the sound of the Lewis ding ding as you're acting I just love everything about it I must say yeah Well I can hear now the sister is uh, rehearsing on stage there oh, Yes I can see them through this window we're in the sound uh, we're in the control room and uh, Claire Monley's doing her little there, Leo's testing and Daughtry testing a door, and Dee Malloy shaking her bits. So I'm thinking that I should probably just let you go and, and <laughs> get into that something. zone. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Thank Thanks you so a million, much. Lisa. Thank you. Thank you.